You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today for our weekly Krika virtual lecture series. Um, my name is Ted Gerber. For those who don't know me, I'm the director of Krika. And uh, just a few quick announcements before I introduce today's speaker. Uh, so, you know, as I noted, this is a weekly lecture series. Uh, every week at 4 p.m. for the rest of the semester, we'll be having uh, speakers over Zoom. And uh, although I think uh, you know, most of us uh, would prefer to have uh, in-person lectures as we've always done in the past, one very nice benefit of uh, this format is indeed that we're able to uh, have in attendance people from all over the world. Um, so the best way to find more information about upcoming talks is at our website, which is at just simply krika.wisc.edu. And then if you go to the main website and click on events, you'll see our calendar. Um, in particular, though, let me announce next week's uh, lecture, which will be, again, at 4 p.m., um, and it will be by the legal scholar Ekaterina Mishina, who will speak on Putin's constitutional amendments 2020, so the recent uh, uh, votes uh, that took place last summer uh, over changes in the Russian constitution. And uh, you can also learn about other virtual lecture series that Krika is participating in. We have a number of those. Um, okay, before I introduce today's speaker, um, let me just make a request, sort of a technical, some technical notes. So please mute your mics and your video for the lecture, uh, just in order to preserve bandwidth, but also to avoid uh, unexpected sounds uh, coming across the wires. And then when we open the floor for questions and discussion, uh, please use the raise hand button and then I will uh, acknowledge you when your turn comes or, or facilitator will. Um, and then at that point, you can turn on your mic. Now, if you don't have mic camera and you'd like to ask a question, then we'd be, we'd be happy to take uh, such questions to via the chat function. However, uh, we ask people to, you know, to, in order to keep everybody focused on the lecture, uh, to try to avoid uh, using the chat function during the actual lecture itself. Um, so, and, and also please hold your questions to the end unless you just have an absolutely, absolutely urgent uh, question of clarification that uh, requires immediate response from the speaker. Um, okay, so today I'm very fortunate uh, to be able to introduce a repeat visit from uh, Yulia Brell, who gave a lecture uh, about Belarus and, and sort of providing a lot of historical context last January. And, and uh, little did we know at the time that Belarus would be the site of such dramatic events as we witnessed in the last uh, month or so. So Yulia is an assistant policy scientist at the Center for Applied Demography and Survey Research at the University of Delaware. She has master's and PhD degrees in urban affairs and public policy from the Biden School of Public Policy and Administration at the same university as Delaware. And she also has a master's degree in linguistics from Minsk State Linguistic University in Belarus from which she originally hails. Uh, Dr. Burrell's interests concentrate on the problems of transition from authoritarianism to democracy in Central and Eastern European countries and the former Soviet republics and she examines why some of them failed to democratize. She also studies 
modern dictatorships, democratic governance, and the role of civil society in the process of transition to democracy and its subsequent uh, consolidation. Um, I'm quite pleased that she agreed to come to talk to us again twice in one year, um, particularly you know, in response to the very uh, newsworthy events that have been taking place. And her talk today is entitled The Fall of Europe's Last Dictator. So welcome, Yulia, and please proceed. Thank you, Ted. Um, hello, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me for the second time to speak to um, Krieger's um, attendees. And um, thank you very much for being here tonight and listening to me. Um, so yes, I come from Belarus. I was born there, grew up, and lived most of my life in Belarus before I moved to the United States. And today I'm going to talk to you about what's going on in my home country, um, why the situation that is currently there um, occurred, and what the possible implications are for the future of Belarus. As you can see, I entitled my presentation today, The Fall of Europe's Last Dictator. Well, we all know that Lukashenko is still there. He hasn't fallen completely yet. Uh, but I believe that what's going on right now in Belarus <clears throat> is actually his fall. Uh, and it's just a matter of time when this fall is going to be completed. Um, so um, in this picture, you see the clash between the riot police in, in Belarus and the um, peaceful protesters uh, holding white, red, white flags. Of course, it was a little bit photoshopped, but I like it very much because it shows here the confrontation between darkness and light. And this is exactly what we're seeing right now in Belarus, the clash between darkness and light. Now a little bit of history. <clears throat> On July the 27th, 1990, one of the republics of the former of the USSR, the Bela Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic, declared its sovereignty from the Soviet state. Uh, on August the 25th, 1991, the country was named the Republic of Belarus. And in 1994, Alexander Lukashenko, a former director of a state-owned collective farm, became the first uh, president of independent Belarus. Uh, at that time, no one could foresee uh, that in the summer of 2020, Lukashenko would be running for presidency for the sixth consecutive time. Here in this picture, you see the first inauguration of Lukashenko in 1994. And please pay attention to the flag he is standing next to. Uh, we will come back to this flag a little bit later in this presentation. Um, in, in April of 2005, then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice uh, called Belarus the last dictatorship in the center of Europe. And years later, in an interview to Reuters, Lukashenko said with a hint of irony, I am the last and only dictator in Europe. Indeed, there are none anywhere else in the world. <clears throat> you came here and looked at a living dictator. Where else would you see one? In my presentation today, I'm going to analyze how Lukashenko, who came to power by means of a democratic election, turned into a dictator and brought under his control all three branches of government. I'm also going to offer an explanation of why the Belarusian people let this happen and why they tolerated a dictator for more than two years. Finally, um, I will consider why the presidential election of 2020 turned out to be so different than Belarus as well as possible implications of the current confrontation between Lukashenko and the people of Belarus for the future of the country. But before we proceed talking about Belarus as a dictatorship, we need to 
uh, define the term. Uh, this definition here is kind of long, but I like it very much because I believe it encompasses all the, most of the characteristic features of uh, dictatorships. So dictatorship is a rule by a single person or clique that is not elected through free and fair elections by the subject population and not removable through popular elections with direct control over security apparatus that represses political opposition without any independent legislative and judicial checks and with a high degree of control over the education system, the mass media, the communication and information systems, as well as the movement of citizens and all that toward the goal of continuing monopoly rule by the regime. Um, the question is, um, so political, uh, I mean, excuse me, potential dictators, they exist everywhere. Yet for a potential dictator to turn into a real one, a special context is required. And it's an interesting question, how dictators make people obey when they come to power. How they make citizens follow them unquestionably, sometimes to the point of doing terrible harm to others as well as to themselves. And in case of civilian dictators, uh, as opposed to military dictators. It is an even more interesting question of why men with guns obey men without guns. Um, so dictators have different tools um, that they use to make people obey. Dictators can make people obey by force, and in this case, it's not necessary, and it's not necessarily physical force. Uh, dictators can be civilian, personalist dictators, uh, charismatic, or sometimes they're called toxic dictators. Uh, when they come to power, they try to be all-embracing, which means they try to control every sphere of people's life. Also, if they manage to ensure economic growth, um, this helps uh, um, them to secure support because they can distribute uh, ample spoils uh, and provide their supporters with those spoils. Um, additionally, dictators may use a combination of democratic constitutional forms with the reality of authoritarian rule which is called facade or imitation democracy. This means that they can conduct regular elections as it happens in Belarus, but the outcomes of their uh, elections will be invariably rigged. Uh, rulers can try to extend their tenure or even eliminate term uh, limits uh, completely. And of course they impose barriers to entry for their position. They also can make voters accustomed um, to a particular individual. And when it's the same person in power over and over again, people become used to this person and become apathetic and to politics. And also dictators can launch uh, a moral mission among the elite to motivate the ruling elite and keep them cohesive. So with this in mind, um, is Belarus a dictatorship? Um, if we follow the, um, definition of dictatorship and the characteristic features that I just enumerated, then yes, Belarus is a dictatorship. We've lived under an irremovable ruler since 1994, which has been already 26 years. Uh, in terms of his control over all branches of government, Belarusian parliament has never enacted a single law on its own. That is, um, there was nothing that Lukashenko personally didn't approve of. All judges in the regional and district courts in Belarus are appointed directly by the president, so there is no independent judiciary. Uh, Lukashenko's eldest son, Viktor, oversees the national security. He's been a member of the National Security Council of the Republic since 2007. Also, Belarusian um, opposition until recently was extremely marginalized to the point that during elections, the number of votes opposition candidates could get hardly exceeded the margin of error. 
So the barriers of entry for their position were virtually insurmountable. And um, another example, for instance, uh, all university rectors and deans are also appointed directly by the president, making the Belarusian state university, um, state university education system subordinate to the president. Um, so everything in the country is subordinate to the will of one person. The question is how Lukashenko became a dictator. He ensured his rise to power in 1994 and the subsequent unlimited term in office by making what some call a tacit deal with the people or by concluding um, a peculiar social contract with the Belarusian uh, people. Uh, and that was the first social contract that was agreed upon between the president and the people, which I called loyalty in exchange for well-being. As I will show further, for many years, the Belarusian president was able to honor his part of the contract, but so was uh, society. In 2003, Andrei Kabekov, then deputy prime minister of Belarus, spoke at the UN forum in uh, Geneva in Switzerland. And he was describing there the economic situation in Belarus in 1994. So when he was talking about the economic situation, he mentioned the following macroeconomic indicators that the average annual indices of consumer prices increased 23-fold, so that was the inflation in 1994. Uh, that there was a state budget deficit with respect to GDP. Uh, there was a negative balance of export and import of commodities and services to GDP. And of course, the country's uh, external national debt was growing. Um, under such economic conditions, Lukashenko's first election campaign was conducted under the motto to divert the people from the abyss. This is what he promised to the Belarusian people in 1994. And uh, he did manage to fulfill his promise. Belarus experienced some economic growth after the decline that preceded and followed the collapse of the USSR. However, although Belarusian official propaganda tended to explain economic success of Lukashenko's first years in power by the efficiency of the chosen model of social and economic development, economic uh, experts believed that, um, that growth was conditioned rather by exogenous factors, that is, ones that did not depend on domestic economic policy of Lukashenko. So here you can see some of the factors that contributed to the economic growth uh, after 1994 in Belarus. First of all, it was the favorable external, uh, those were favorable external market conditions. Also the structure of the industry that Belarus inherited from its Soviet past. Um, Well-educated and disciplined labor force. And also the fact that Belarus economy was export oriented helped. Um, uh, Belarus um, um, enjoyed um, um, low cost energy resources and uh, numerous uh, loans that Russia has been providing for years and years. So all these factors contributed to the economic growth and had nothing to do with the domestic policy, uh, domestic economic policy. Uh, the IMF actually drew attention to the fact that Belarusian official national statistical data might be upwardly biased. But even if it was so, and it's probably and it probably was and is so, um, um, whether the level of the economic growth in Belarus was overestimated by the official statistics or not, there is no doubt that after Lukashenko came to power and after the economic recession that followed the collapse of the Soviet Union, already by 1996, 
uh, that year was already marked by a growth in the Belarusian economy. Um, so, um, as it has been mentioned, economic growth helps dictators generate electoral support uh, through the provision of the supporters with various spoils. Since the economic situation was improving in Belarus, Lukashenko felt confident enough to promote his political agenda. And most importantly, the agenda um, included finding a way for him to make his presidential term indefinite and his power unlimited. So like other dictators, Lukashenko had some tools at his disposal that could help him circumvent uh, term limits and prolong his time in office. One of those tools was the introduction of amendments to the constitution that would allow a complete elimination of term limits. And the way to introduce those uh, constitutional amendments was to hold a national uh, or national referendum. Uh, therefore, between 1995 and 2004, three national referenda were held in Belarus, were conducted in Belarus. The first one in 1995 had four questions. The most important um, question at that referendum was the introduction of an amendment to the constitution that allowed the president to terminate the powers of parliament in case it constantly violated the constitution. Basically what it meant, if uh, parliament tried to do anything against Lukashenko's will, he would be able to say that they are violating the constitution and just terminate the parliament. As you can see, according to the uh, Central Election Committee, 78% of the voters uh, voted for this amendment. Other questions at that referendum concerned the status of the Russian language in Belarus, making it a, a state language just like the Belarusian, about the economic integration with Russia and about the introduction of new slash old symbols of Belarus, the state flag and the state coat of arms. Um, I will talk about those uh, symbols a bit later as well, but you can see that for all the questions, the overwhelming majority voted for. Of course, the opposition always claimed, um, and I agree with them, that the outcome of the elections and referenda were rigged. But I do believe that in 1995, most people who voted, they were still Soviet people, and they didn't really understand what they were doing when they were voting for, that, uh, for the introduction of that change into the constitution, and uh, they didn't understand the possible consequences. Um, uh, being inspired by the success of the first referendum, in 1996, Lukashenko conducted the second one. That one had seven questions for the population to vote on. The most important was adopting changes and additions into the constitution, which stipulated increasing the powers of the president, giving his decrease the force of law, and giving him total control over the state budget, and the extension of the presidential term of office until 2001. Since the majority supported the, uh, the adoption of these changes, Lukashenko said that the two years of his presidency from 1994 to 1996, uh, not, they're not going to count them anymore. And so his first term will be counted from 1996. So the next election, uh, uh, presidential election in Belarus was held in 2001. And finally, in 2004, the third referendum, and there was just one question. And the question was about complete elimination of the presidential term limit. Again, 79% said yes and supported this change. So from that time on, um, anyone in Belarus can run for presidency as many times as he or she wants. There is no term limit for one particular individual. 
the outcomes of the three referenda showed that the Belarusian people were fulfilling their part of the social contract. They demonstrated loyalty to the regime. And the regime was doing the same, that is providing well-being for the Belarusian people. And it was claimed that the economic growth happened thanks to the introduction of the so-called Belarusian economic model. In 2003, Kubikov, again the deputy prime minister of Belarus, he talked about the development of the Belarusian model of socially oriented market economy. In its completed form, the Belarusian model would, would amount to high, high effective economy, develop business undertaking and market infrastructure, guarantees to people who were working high standard of well-being, or if they were disabled or older handicapped, so they would be guaranteed social security. And there was also constitutional guarantee of rights and freedoms of citizens. Sounds great, uh, doesn't it? However, uh, already by 2006, the Belarusian economic model had exhausted its potential. And here are some figures. You can see that by the end of 2006, when gas prices were increased, um, uh, the increased double gross external debt of the country. Then between 2008 and 2009, global economic crisis happened, which led to a slowdown in growth and increased microeconomic volatility in the country and the balance of payment crisis. We also experienced the uh, devaluation of our currency by more than 50%, um, and the macroeconomic situation remained fragile between 2013 and 2014. Uh, later, the World Bank made a forecast uh, for the condition of the economy for 2015 and 2016, and that was the first time when the World Bank forecast actually that the economy was going to shrink, the first time since 1995. Thus, when the favorable external factors that had been conditioning Belarusian economic growth changed, the country found itself in a situation of being unable to produce any kind of growth on its own. The state was no longer able to provide its citizens even with the modest economic stability which it had previously provided. Lukashenko realized that the social contract had to be changed. An answer to the question of what to do and how to change the contract without losing his power came from the least expected direction, and it came from the war in Ukraine. For Lukashenko, that war was a blessing in disguise. Um, as you probably remember, in November 2013, mass protests against the policy of the Ukrainian pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych began in Kyiv. As a result of the protest, Yanukovych was deposed and had to flee to Russia. Was Lukashenko afraid that a Maidan, uh, this is the name of the Ukrainian revolution, was he afraid that it could happen in Belarus? I tend to believe that he was, in spite of his saying the opposite. So previously, his political longevity was assured by the ability of the state to maintain a steady growth in the population income. Now this growth, growth ha has been replaced by a steady decline. So what could Lukashenko possibly do in this case? There seem to be two main options for him. The first option to step down from power, the second one to change the social contract. Uh, of course, stepping down from power was completely, um, was not at all feasible for Lukashenko. So the only way to retain his power was to change the social contract and make it appealing to the people in Belarus. Um, so the new social contract was called loyalty in exchange for peace. Why was it called that? Why I called it that? Um, in September, six, on September 16, 2015, Lukashenko's new election program was published by the Belarusian mass media. 
And this time, the motto of his campaign was for the future of independent Belarus. Uh, pay attention that nothing here was mentioned about economy or the economic well-being. The program informed the voters that at the moment, Belarus was facing only two possi possible paths. One was the path of preserving the stability and order, freedom and independence. It was the path of peace. The other, the other was the path of cares of the 90s, brutal capitalism and loss of independence. So that was the path of revolution, blood and war. The new program was built around these dichotomies, light and darkness, peace and war, cares and uh, order. Uh, so the main result of Lukashenko becoming president for the first time would be a peaceful and happy life for our people. This, uh, this is a citation from his uh, um, election program. Here a conclusion suggests itself, uh, as Lukashenko's regime was not able to provide Belarusian citizens with well-being in exchange for loyalty anymore. Now they were offered to trade their loyalty for peace. The question is whether the citizens of Belarus agreed to this new contract. And the answer is yes, they did. The fifth presidential election in Belarus was held on October the 11th, 2015. And again, according to the Central Election Committee, 84% of uh, voters uh, supported this new program and elected Lukashenko president again. Um, the new social contract posed many questions, of course. So one of the questions was where, uh, whether uh, whether peace and stability were actually more important than, so to say, chicken and the pot, and uh, for how long peace and stability would be more important for Belarusian citizens than uh, economic stability. Um, there were no mass protests after that uh, presidential election. There were some, but not mass protests. Uh, and so the question was whether the absence of those protests was just a lull before the storm. Also, was the price of for honoring um, his part of the contract getting too high for the president at that point? And of course, many people in the country worried, and not only in Belarus, worried whether uh, the worst case scenario, Maidan or the revolution was actually possible in Belarus. As time showed, um, no Maidan happened in Belarus in 2015, uh, and no mass protest happened either. Now, to reiterate, until 2015, Lukashenko's political longevity could be explained to a certain degree by the social contract he and Belarusian society had tacitly concluded, loyalty in exchange for well-being. Uh, that society was promised financial well-being is obvious from Lukashenko's uh, election programs from different years. Uh, here you can see that, for instance, in 1994, he promised to move society from, from the abyss of cares and social upheaval to stability and program progressed. Um, five years later, well, actually it was more than five years later, um, he promised to sharply increase people's well-being and approach the level of economically developed European states, although he didn't specify which states exactly. Uh, five years later, he promised to bring the quality of life of our citizens to the level compared to the Western European one. Um, uh, still later, the rhetoric became even more modest, and now Lukashenko promised to bring the quality of life in Belarus to that of Europe by 2015, as if Europe was some kind of a unified space where everyone enjoyed the same quality of life. Um, but in 2015, due to the events in Ukraine, the social compact had to be changed, and hence uh, there was a different promise in the program. So this time you can see that it was peace and stability, peaceful and happy life of our people. 
nothing there was, uh, nothing was mentioned about uh, well-being or economy. Uh, so what could Lukashenko promise people in 2020? Uh, that was a difficult question uh, because um, 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 the economy, the Belarusian economy, uh, wasn't doing well at all. Uh, but he still made a, an economic promise to double the average monthly salary in the country within the next five years. What exactly does that mean? In July 2020, the average monthly salary, and I emphasize it once again, it's monthly salary in Belarus was around $500. And that's according to the National Statistical Committee of the Republic of Belarus. Well, the first time Lukashenko promised that the average monthly salary would become, would equal $500 was in 2004. So uh, since that time, he managed to reach that figure three times. Uh, once it was in 2010 for just one month, then in 2011 for two months, and it ended up in currency devaluation. And then for the third time, it was in 2012. Uh, it lasted for two years, but then again, it ended in currency devaluation in December 2014. So within the last 15 years, we are still, uh, it was the same promise to, to make the average salary about $500. And now he promises to double it within the next five years. What's interesting, there was a suggestion uh, in that uh, program, not, not a promise, to conduct a referendum on a constitutional reform. And uh, when the reform is introduced, people will define their rights, freedoms and duties and powers of the executive government agencies. This is something completely new. And it's interesting why Lukashenko even decided to suggest something like that. Well, as you know, on August 9, 2020, uh, the sixth uh, presidential election was held in Belarus. As a result of that election, the Central Election Committee announced Lukashenko the winner with again over 80% of votes allegedly for him. Uh, there, um, other candidate, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, according to the Central Election Committee, got, I think, no more than 10%. And this time, uh, the situation in Belarus erupted right after uh, uh, the voting. So how is the situation different this time? Well, first of all, it, it differs uh, because of its unprecedented scale and duration of the protest. Uh, it's been more than 40 days already that people has, have been protesting in Belarus. Um, another thing is the unprecedented cruelty and downright status of the riot police. It should be mentioned that the riot police, uh, they always um, crack down on protesters after beginning with 2001. People were always arrested and uh, put into detention centers, but never the riot police acted so cruelly as they're doing it this time. Also this time what is different is that it's not just the traditional opposition that is protesting, but it's people from all walks of life. And we can say with a lot of certainty that basically the majority of Belarusians are now against the uh, election outcomes. Uh, another feature of Belarusian protests, uh, unlike um, the protests in Ukraine, for instance, these protests are neither pro or anti-Russian, nor pro or anti-West. They're purely against Lukashenko. They're anti-Lukashenko protests. Um, what are the reasons uh, for uh, the current protests being so different from whatever happened before in, in the modern history of Belarus? 
Some reasons are economic reasons. The so-called tax maneuver, uh, which deepened economic crisis. Um, what exactly was that? Um, so Russia began to cut export duties on its crude oil and simultaneously increased the mineral extraction tax. And because of that, uh, prices of Russian oil for Belarus began to grow. Ultimately, they will reach world prices, making it impossible for Belarus to continue to purchase Russian oil at a substantial discount and then sell oil derivatives to, at market prices to European uh, countries. So this um, tax maneuver contributed to the deepening economic crisis in Belarus, as well as the so-called Medvedev's ultimatum. This is when Russia demanded from Belarus uh, closer integration. Uh, and what they wanted was, uh, among other things, introduction of a single currency in the Union state, and Russian Belarus uh, has had a, a Union state since 1997, mostly on paper, but all of a sudden Russia started demanding uh, that <clears throat> Belarus should implement the Treaty of 1999. Um, so if Belarus um, complies with the demands, what it may mean for Belarus is the complete loss of its sovereignty and independence. And uh, Lukashenko was unable to do anything against it. And of course, uh, these factors contributed to the decline of his rating. Another reason for such strong post-election um, protest uh, is the complete total passivity and indifference of Lukashenko during the COVID-19 pandemic. Probably you know that Belarus is the only country that never uh, um, introduced any quarantine, didn't close borders with any neighboring countries. And Lukashenko personally acts as if COVID-19 does not exist. So people felt really left uh, on their own with their problems. Another reason was the crackdown on alternative candidates that happened even before those people, uh, Sergei Tsikhanovsky, Viktor Babarika, and Valery Tsipkala were even, even before they registered as presidential candidates and they, they were not allowed to do that. So instead uh, of Sergei Tsikhanovsky, who was arrested, his wife uh, ran for presidency. Also harassment and mass arrests of independent observers that happened at the polling stations uh, on the day of voting. This also contributed to people's discontent and uh, their rage. And again, as I've mentioned, the unprecedented cruelty of repressions during the first few days after the elections and then uh, it continues right now. Um, many people uh, ask questions uh, why uh, protesters carry uh, a different flag, not, not the flag that is the official flag of the Republic of Belarus. Um, so this white, red, white banner was first created in 1917. And it was created by the Belarusian architect and politician Claudius Dushdushevsky. And it was created for the Belarusian People's Republic, which was established in 1918 under the German occupation and existed only for 10 months. Uh, so um, after that, uh, in 1991, this same flag became the official flag of independent Belarus. And before that, it was used by the Belarusian People's Front movement, which was led by Zinon Pazniak. Uh, since that flag was the official flag of Belarus between 1991 and 1995, you saw that picture of Lukashenko being inaugurated for the first time next to that flag. 
1995, uh, Lukashenko conducted the referendum and replaced that flag uh, with the current red and green flag, which is basically just a slight modification of the flag that the Soviet Belarus used to have. They just removed the hem and the sickle from it and altered a little bit the ornament on the left. Uh, so until the election of 2020, this flag, right, uh, white, red, white flag, was uh, basically a symbol of the opposition. And the government did everything they could to make people associate that flag with, uh, with evil, with some criminal activity, with nationalist opposition. And they even said that, you know, some people who collaborated with the Nazi Germans during World War II, they used that flag. So most Belarusians were either indifferent or even afraid of that flag. But in the summer and fall of 2020, that flag turned into a symbol that united all Belarusians in their struggle against Lukashenko's regime. Even those who were apolitical and never considered themselves to be in their position. So here in this picture, you see the two flags, the white, red, white banner and the official flag of uh, the Republic of Belarus. And also, you probably have seen uh, this coat of arms on some of the flags, or maybe on people's faces. So this is called in Belarusian Pagonia, which means pursuit. And this is the coat of arms that is based on the coat of arms of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. It depicts a mounted equestrian with a raised sword and looks very similar to the current coat of arms of the Republic of Lithuania. Um, it was used in the Great Duchy of Lithuania since 1366 until 1795, uh, when the territory of modern-day Belarus was incorporated into the Russian Empire. It was used again in 1918 for 10 months for the short-lived Belarusian People's Republic, and then again between 1991 and 1995, when it was an official state emblem of the Republic of Belarus. Um, then it was changed into this, again, slightly modified Soviet symbol, and I didn't know it. I only found this out when I was getting ready for this presentation that apparently in February 2020, um, the Belarusian parliament updated the emblem. And you see that here, the globe is centered on Belarus and shows more of Europe rather than Russia in, in the old version. Um, and they changed the color of the outline of the map of Belarus. Why was it done? One of the explanations given by Radio Liberty was that uh, it happened amid a push from Russia for closer ties. So when Belarus changed that, the, the, uh, um, the image of the globe showing more of Europe rather than Russia, it was a sign that um, uh, Belarus was point, pointedly looking west right now rather than to the east. One important question is why uh, the protest, current protest persist. There are different reasons for that. The electoral fraud uh, was one of the catalysts for the onset of mass protests, but fraud happened uh, all the time uh, before that. Uh, another reason is there mentioned sadistic police beating and torture of peaceful protesters and also uh, just bystanders. Many people who were grabbed by the right police um, they were just bystanders. They didn't participate in their protest and they were beaten and tortured and raped just like uh, those who participated. Also, informal social networks and social media helped um, sustain protest activity, even though the Belarusian government tried to shut down the internet many times. Uh, those protests are committed to nonviolent action, which is very important. Until now, 
to my knowledge, not a single car was destroyed or not a single window was broken by protesters. And in Belarus, people are not allowed to carry guns. So those protesters are not armed and they are peaceful protesters. Uh, also this time, um, uh, opposition or protest, they managed to mobilize into action, not only citizens or people who live in Minsk in the capital, but also citizens across cities and towns in, 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 the, in the entire Belarus. And what is also very important this time is that mass uh, mobilization in this case is boasted not only by intellectuals, so young people or students, but also by white collar professionals and <clears throat> even more important by the working class. Um, I'm sure you heard about strikes at state-owned enterprises. This never happened before and the working class was actually one of the pillars supporting Lukashenko's regime previously. And that's why Lukashenko called the strikes as a step into his back. Uh, finally, what are the implications of uh, this post-election crisis in Belarus? As of now, of course, no one knows how the confrontation will end. As Artem Schreiben recently mentioned in one of his articles on Carnegie uh, Russian, uh, he said that personalized authoritarian regimes like in Belarus hardly ever give in without a bloody fight. And Lukashenko will not give in without a bloody fight. He made it very clear when he stated that we held an election, there won't be any other election until you kill me. And I'm pretty sure he meant what he said. Uh, the problem with Belarusian protests is that uh, until now, there is still no division among the elites. And um, um, <clears throat> all the things that usually that are needed to divide the elites under the pressure from the public are lacking in Belarusian protests. Uh, there is no ruling party in Belarus, for instance. There is no influential parliament. Uh, we don't have oligarchs. We don't have different clans that uh, would be fighting with each other or maybe collaborating with each other. So the elites are not divided so far. As for the protests, they may or may not die out. Um, uh, if they do, uh, then of course the regime would want to retaliate against the participants and um, Lukashenko may rely even more on Siloviki, which is the law enforcement agencies like uh, police, uh, regular police, riot police, the army, even more than he is doing right now. Um, the economic crisis is also deepening in Belarus. Uh, we desperately need money. And of course, no one is going to give that money right now. Um, I mean, but no one, by no one, I mean the European Union or the IMF or, or even the United States. Um, another question which worries a lot of people, whether Russia will or will not interfere with or intervene with its military force. Uh, as of now, uh, most the political scientists and commentators or observers um, um, tend to think that Russia will not actually intervene, although they might create this um, um, impression that they're ready to do it. And another thing that is um, peculiar to Belarus is the lack of demand to change Belarus geopolitical orientation. This, by this I mean that uh, there is no sentiment in the Belarusian protest that Belarus needs to kind of escape from uh, Russia's influence and to go and to join Western democracies. And because this sentiment is absent, there is a certain lack of interest in Belarus on the part of the West. And from my point of view, there is very little support and very little help on the part of the European Union and the United States also um, for the protests. Uh, so, um, uh, 
Um, this would be the end of um, my presentation, but before we move on to questions, I would like to show you some pictures that um, uh, demonstrate what is going on in Belarus right now. This picture, for instance, it shows men on the floor in the gym or in one of the police departments in Minsk. And many people who were detained and later released, they were telling the same story that this is how, uh, what the police would do. They're in the gym because there were not enough room. There was not enough room in the cells. They arrested so many people. They would make people lie on the floor, sometimes on top of one another. And if they would ask for water or to go to the bathroom, they would be mercilessly bitten for that. And you can see the white, red, white banner right here, all covered in blood. Um, uh, here is one of the pictures from what was going on in Minsk in, in August. Honestly, uh, I have never seen uh, our right police to have all this equipment or these fences and standing on them. This is something completely new. So they were getting ready and prepared for this particular election. Um, in this picture, you see Nina Baginska. She is a 73-year-old woman, and she is very famous right now because she is uh, constantly among the protesters with the white, red, white flag. She was detained by the right police, but she's completely fearless and she continues uh, protesting together with much younger people. Um, in this picture, you again, you can see the right police and all these horrible things. I don't even know the name for this um, truck or machine. Um, this picture was taken, if I'm not mistaken, on August the 30th, which is Lukashenko's birthday. And these are the gifts that people brought uh, for him. Uh, this um, balloon, oh, I'm sorry, uh, shaped as a helicopter, it says to The Hague, uh, meaning that people expect Lukashenko one day to go to trial in The Hague. Uh, here you see Lukashenko being um, um, armed with a gun. And this is when he called protesters rats. And he, before that, he called people sheep and all other names. Uh, this is speaking about 80% allegedly supporting Lukashenko. Uh, another picture of the right police in the very center of Minsk. I know exactly where this place is. And uh, honestly, in my worst nightmare, I could never imagine seeing anything like this in the city where I grew up. Um, protests continue every week. And usually on Saturdays, there are the so-called women marches. So women protest and they are being detained and tortured um, the same way men are. And here you see that 3% meaning that people believe that Lukashenko got no more than 3% actually during the election. Meaning that they believe that 97% or the majority of votes were given for Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. And again, you see our right police, how well they equipped. And this is all, um, all those horrible trucks there. Um, and this is all, of course, paid for by taxpayers' money. Another confrontation, the right police and the unarmed people with white, red, white banners. And one more here. So this is what is happening in Belarus every single Sunday and during the week as well. But on Sundays and Saturdays, the protests are more numerous. And as far as I know, even last Sunday, up to 150,000 or 200,000 people were out in the streets in Minsk alone. And this would be the end of my presentation. I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you. 
Great. Thank you very much uh, for a very informative and uh, fascinating presentation. Uh, I can see we already have some hands up. So uh, let's jump right into questions and discussions. And I'm going to ask uh, people if they would uh, just briefly introduce themselves uh, before proceeding with their questions. So uh, first on tap is Michael Goodman. Please remember to unmute your mics and turn on your video before uh, answering your or posing your questions. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is Mike uh, Goodman. I've been a follower of the CRECA program for many years. I'm a former uh, ABD uh, candidate in uh, the history department in Wisconsin. Uh, my question is this. Uh, what accounts for the lack of interest in the use of the Belarusian language and the desire apparently to uh, continue to use the Russian language and giving that language precedence over Belarusian. Thanks. Uh, honestly, I could pos I could give you a whole lecture on this, on the linguistic situation in Belarus, but um, to put it in a nutshell, um, it's, a, it's a historical issue. So the way Belarus as a, as a country, as a state uh, was developing, uh, Belarus almost never until 1991 uh, was an independent country. It has always been a part of a larger polity, uh, beginning with Kiev and Rus, then it was part of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, then Rich Pospolita, then the Russian Empire, then the Soviet Union. And it just happened so that uh, in that territory, which eventually became the Republic of Belarus, until uh, the Soviet regime was established, most people who lived there, they were mostly peasants. They were uneducated. They spoke some kind of um, um, dialect of a Russian language, maybe, or whatever word later became to be called Belarusian. There was no written language, actually, uh, until the beginning of the uh, 20th century. And uh, also people who lived in towns in Belarus, there were no cities before uh, Belarus became a Soviet republic. Most people there spoke either Russian or Polish or Yiddish. Uh, so there were no speakers of the Belarusian language among the intelligentsia or educated people. And so uh, also when the Soviet regime was established, uh, um, for the first 10 years or so, the Belarusian language was promoted, but then the policy changed in the Soviet Union in general, and the policy of Russification was established. And that meant that, uh, you know, people in all uh, republics were supposed to be able to speak Russian and promote the Russian language and culture. And because in Belarus already in the city, uh, most people did not actually speak the Belarusian language. So this policy of Russification didn't meet any um, uh, what's the word? Uh, people were not against it. Uh, and so also after World War II, because Belarus was so, uh, the economy, the infrastructure was almost completely destroyed and so many people were killed. So the Soviet government sent people from Russia to uh, uh, reconstruct the Republic. Uh, and those people were mostly Russian speaking too. And they would come and stay in the cities and promote again the Russian language. Uh, so uh, by the time Belarus became independent and uh, when the language law was introduced that uh, uh, made the Belarusian language the only state language in the country, the majority of the population already did not speak Belarusian as their first language. And that's why I believe when Lukashenko conducted his referendum and asked about whether people would agree to make the Russian language again the state language, just like the Belarusian, 
there was little resistance. Of course, some people were against it, but the majority didn't care because they were already speaking Russian. And for them to switch to Belarusian would be a problem. But right now, because so many people are fighting against Lukashenko personally, the use of the Belarusian language became just like the symbol with the flag. So, and, and they, um, some people who never spoke Belarusian before, they start speaking it and they start singing songs in the Belarusian language. Uh, but it's a historical issue and, and, and didn't happen um, because of Lukashenko. People were speaking Russian mostly in Belarus long before him. Okay, thank you very much for the question and for the answer. Um, next we have uh, Jeffrey Trimble. Um, hi there, greetings. Um, I teach communication and political science courses at The Ohio State University. A terrific presentation, Yul. You're really rich and informative. I worked for many years in U.S. international broadcasting, including 10 years at Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, so I'm very familiar with their work, including that of the Belarus service of RFERL. I wondered if you could comment on the information and media environment in Belarus today. Lukashenko certainly controls all the official means of information, but nevertheless, people are managing to stay in contact and share information using Telegram and, and other platforms. Uh, can Lukashenko really crack down fully on the information environment? Uh, do you think that's realistic or do you think people will continue to somehow get access to information? Any comments you'd have on this, I'd really appreciate. Thank you. Uh, I don't really think that he can do it. Like he can try, uh, they can shut down internet to an extent, but those uh, like Telegram channels and others, they were unable, uh, this is my understanding, that they were unable to crack down completely on it. Uh, and you know that Belarus is, is an IT country. <laughs> and so our IT people who are, I'm pretty sure all of them are against this regime. They will try to do everything they can to, uh, not let it happen. So, um, I, and I, I think just because we live in a modern world with the internet and all other means of communication with the iPhones, uh, it's not possible to do it, no matter how, how hard uh, Lukashenko and, and you know his regime and his government uh, can try, but they cannot completely and fully shut everything down and prevent people from communicating. And that's why this is, this is what uh, some commentators uh, and political scientists or whoever watches the situation in Belarus think one of the reasons why protests continue and they persist because people, although there is no leader, as you know, there is no leader uh, of the protest, uh, but people still manage to uh, get together and organize and uh, decide when they're going to go out in the streets to protest just because they they are able to communicate uh, via those channels, you know, like Telegram and others, that the government is unable to crack down on or to shut down completely. Thank you very much. I'd just like to recommend to everybody two really great young people uh, reporting out of Belarus, Hanna Lubakova and Franek Bichorka, are very much worth following uh, Twitter feeds. I highly recommend it. They're really up to date and on top and writing in English. Thank you a lot. Okay, yeah, thanks for the suggestion to, to follow those two individuals as well. Appreciate that. Um, okay, next we have uh, Matthew Green. Hello, um, 
so I just I wanted to thank you for this presentation because the situation is so complicated and you just broke it down so in such an approachable way. Um, and so my question actually builds off of those past two questions because, you know, I, I don't know if I should say Zyakui or Spasiba because one of the really interesting things that I've just been seeing in my own little bubble on social media with, uh, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm, I'm here in, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and I'm in the Department of German, Nordic and Slavic Plus. Uh, and I work in German, Czech and Yiddish. So Belarus is just really interesting to me and the language hierarchies and, and policies. And so what I've seen just in my little bubble of of uh, the, Belarus, the Belarusian diaspora in the US and in the Czech Republic where I have most of my contacts uh, has been how it's, it's been interesting to see changes in spelling in a lot of ways that um, seeing posts that for example, Minsk has, is now written in Belarusian instead of in Russian. And so you see the I with the dot instead of mm -hmm. you know, what I would call the backwards N and so I was just interested, you know, what, what role is the diaspora playing and how, how is this helping with information spread and also, you know, this rediscovery of a Belarusian identity? Because it's interesting you said that the protests are not against the West, they're not against Russia, they're against Lukashenko himself. And so it's, it's this really, it's just fascinating to see this, almost this discovery of being Belarusian? Uh, well, um, it's difficult for me to say what exactly the role of the diaspora is. I can tell you, for instance, that this is probably the first time in my life when I am proud uh, of saying that I'm from Belarus. Never before. And I'm not an ethnic Belarusian. Uh, like I uh, said in answering my uh, pr previous question about the Belarusian language, both of my grandfathers were sent to Belarus after World War II. Uh, so, uh, and my, both of my grandmothers, uh, so they were Ukrainian and my grandmothers were Russian. So I'm half Russian and half Ukrainian, but I was born in Belarus and I always considered myself uh, Belarusian, so to say. But, you know, since Lukashenko came to power, I was never proud of my country. I was ashamed to say that I'm from Belarus. And this is the first time when I'm watching this protest and I feel prideful for, for, for the people and that I'm kind of, I can say that I'm part of that, uh, um, society, although I don't live in Belarus anymore. But in terms of diaspora helping, um, I can tell you that at least on my Facebook, when I open it every day, I see my friends reposting uh, pictures of how, and not only on my Facebook, but uh, Charter 97 is, uh, is a portal uh, with Belarusian news that is, um, it's, it's now the headquarters are in Poland, in Warsaw, I believe. So they constantly post pictures of people, Belarusians who live in different countries, how they protest uh, next to the Russian embassies or how they climb the Mount Everest and, and, and hold the white, red, white banner or, you know, dress in white, red and white clothes and do some, some performances maybe somewhere in New York City. Uh, and I think uh, to an extent, of course, when people see it, when they see it on, on Facebook, for instance, it does help them to feel that people who are Belarusians and who are not uh, in Belarus right now, they still support them. And um, it's very important because even during the election, there, were, uh, there was information about how people in, 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 in the United States went to the embassy to, to vote or in, in Warsaw 
to the Belarusian embassy. And there were many people in, in Canada. Uh, there were many people who would come. And, and in, I know in Warsaw, they had to wait for hours in line. And some of them didn't even manage to vote because the time was uh, over. So there were too many people. And the embassy wasn't ready that so many people would come. And I think it's probably the first time uh, in the modern history of Belarus that so many Belarusians who live outside the country wanted to be true citizens and go and vote. So in, uh, from this point of view, I think, yes, it's important and the diaspora does contribute um, to the protest and to their good spirits, you know, high spirits. Well, that's a, a, yeah, that's a moving statement uh, on your own part. Uh, you thank you very much. So just a quick note. So I see that some people have been posting questions and comments in the chat function. Uh, what I'd like to do is prioritize people who are, are going to pose their questions uh, verbally. Uh, if we have time, once those people do, so I encourage you uh, to, to go ahead and, and get in the queue by raising your hand uh, and posing your questions or comments verbally, but uh, we, I will read some of those. We'll check them once the queue is exhausted for uh, in life, live person questions. So um, in that uh, queue, we now have Gabe Share. So Gabe, why don't you go ahead? Sure, one sec. Um, hi, so my name is Gabe Shear. Um, I'm a first year master's student in Krika. And um, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about the social contract that emerged after Maidan, uh, what you called, you know, loyalty in exchange for peace. Because like pre-Maidan Ukraine had some very large cleavages between um, normal people, East and West, but also between oligarchs over the flow of money from, you know, central state. And um, there is some research that's shown that you know, a lot of mobilization in Donbass came to, down to oligarchs who were afraid that the flow of capital was going to be cut off. So just from what I understand about Belarus, it doesn't seem to have those like um, cleavages on the social and economic, like an oligarchic level, at least um, before all of this started. So did people take um, Lukashenko's argument at face value because, you know, the war in Donbass was so shocking or did they just kind of shrug it off? Uh, well, you're correct uh, saying that in Belarus, we don't have these cleavages. It's not like in Ukraine, you have the East and the West and you have uh, Central Ukraine or you have people who are Ukrainian speaking and who are Russian speaking or you have oligarchs and different clans that are constantly fighting with each other. Belarus as a country, as a state, as a society is pretty much, what's the word I'm looking for, homogenous. Uh, so th there is no split between the East or West. There is no split uh, between, let's say, Orthodox believers or Catholics. And right now, actually, one thing that I didn't mention is how the church or churches were reacting and supporting people in their fight. This never happened before either. Um, so um, since there, is, there are no cleavages whatsoever in society, uh, especially if we compare uh, with Ukraine. So yes, uh, I would say that uh, in 2015, right after uh, the war in Ukraine started in 2014, people were really scared. They were really scared. And um, after Russia intervened and uh, it became obvious uh, how quickly everything can really go to pieces. 
Belarus is much smaller than Ukraine. And uh, at that time, I was thinking that if Russia tried to do something like that to us, we would not resist at all. They would occupy us within 24 hours. And I actually believed this even two months ago when uh, before the elections happened. But honestly, right now, I am pretty sure if Russia tries to intervene, people will resist. Oh, they will resist. And Russia will probably not do it, at least for one reason, that Belarusians, as I said, they're not against Russia. They're not anti-Russian. And in Russia, they regard us as a friendly people. And uh, even people in Russia would not support this military interference. So I do believe that in 2015, they did the majority, not all of the people in Belarus, of course, but the majority did take it uh, at face value what Lukashenko was saying, because his, all, his uh, election campaign was about, you know, war and peace, you know, cares and order, darkness and light. And he managed to persuade people that peace was more important than anything else. And people were scared, and I think they did believe him, and they were okay with that. Maybe not happy, but uh, no mass protest happened in Belarus in 2015. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks. So uh, now I do want to get in a few of the uh, questions that have been submitted uh, in the chat function. So first, Emily Gams. Uh, asks. So she, I'm just going to read it out. So you briefly compare protests in Belarus. Maidan revolution in Ukraine, and actually you compared it more so in your response to the, the question so far. Uh, so the question is, during Maidan, there were, or during Maidan, there were small uh, protests in almost every town across Ukraine, um, and uh, has something similar happened in Belarus? So is it is it true that the protests aren't just persisting in Minsk, but have taken place and persist in towns outside of Minsk? And if so, is there a different perspective on those protests outside of Minsk compared to within Minsk? It is true that this time protests are taking place everywhere. Um, maybe not in small villages, but at least in, 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 in towns uh, that are more or less big. And, and you can see it on the news every week that people are going out in the streets and especially over the weekend when there is a huge uh, demonstration in Minsk usually, but there are smaller demonstrations uh, in other places as well. And this is one of the characteristic features of this particular um, protest this time, uh, because it never happened before. If there were any protests, um, they were mostly in Minsk. So very uh, rarely anyone uh, who was outside Minsk uh, participated. And they were on a much smaller scale. And even in Minsk, they were pretty small. Uh, in, what was it? Uh, 2015, so they were always protests after each election uh, beginning with 2001. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, last time in 2015, it took just four days for the authorities to crack down. And this time it's been more than 40 days already. And it doesn't look like they're going to die out anywhere soon. Um, so yes, this time is different and um, smaller towns and cities um, outside means they do participate and support the protests. Okay, great. Okay, now we have uh, several questions from Anna Popovich, and I will ask them. Uh, so well, this first question is uh, very much on the minds, I think, of many uh, politicians and uh, those interested in the geopolitical side of this. So, and as since Belarusians are angered with Lukashenko's pro-Russian integration politics, uh, what do you think are the chances that an anti-Russian agenda becomes uh, part of their, uh, the opposition's uh, uh, 
uh, strategy or part of their uh, demands, um, or so, so to speak. Uh, so how, how, how likely is it, I guess, that the, the opposition will shift in an anti-Russian direction? I don't think so. It's uh, from my point of view and my understanding of the situation, it's unlikely. Unless, of course, Russia intervenes with their troops, then maybe it, uh, the, the, the rhetoric will change. But as of now, uh, like I said, uh, Belarusians in general do not have this anti-Russian sentiment and never had. Uh, that's why I think in 1991, when Belarusian People's, Belarusian People's Front was trying to promote this kind of view, this very nationalistic ideas, something similar to what was happening in the Baltic states, it didn't resonate with the majority of people because most people were speaking Russian. They didn't feel any, didn't have any hostile feelings towards Russian. They never considered, unlike uh, in the Baltic states, they never considered Russia to be an occupant who, who came and took our land and now we want to drive them out uh, and, and switch back to our native language. Uh, it has never been the case, and it's not the case right now. So, and that's why I don't. Uh, that's why I think there are no sentiments like this right now in, in the protests, and they're mostly anti-Lukashenko rather than anti-Russian. Or, and then people do understand that we really depend on Russia greatly in terms of our economy. Um, so, whoever comes after Lukashenko will still have to deal with Russia. And actually what you can hear, so whoever is talking about it, they say that we want to be friends with everyone. We want to have a good relationship with Russia and with Europe. So uh, that's why I think unless Russia, uh, Russia really does something really stupid, <laughs> I, don't think, I, I don't see that uh, you know, society at large or even the opposition, they will switch and uh, start being very anti-Russian. Okay, uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's very interesting answer and actually dovetails nicely with the next question from Anna. Uh, so you've laid out uh, quite well how uh, the protests are really very simple and straightforward and very focused on anti-Lukashenko as the, the message, that that's the sole message. And you've already talked some about this, but maybe you can say a little bit more about, you know, how do you, why, why how could you explain that uh, the fact that there's so much focus on anti-Lukashenko sentiment, and that's really the only demands that the protesters appear to have in, uh, in uh, Belarus, in contrast to uh, the situation in Ukraine, where mm -hmm. uh, the you know, whole range of different demands and ideas emerged in the course of the protest movement. I think one of the reasons is that people are actually very tired of Lukashenko. Mm -hmm. uh, his ideas, his uh, collective farm populism, collective farm director populism and ideology was fine for people in, in the 1990s. So um, Belarus, when it was part of the Soviet Union, like economically, financially, our republic was doing much better relatively than many other republics in the former Soviet Union. So people enjoyed a higher standards of living. And then by the time the Soviet Union collapsed and right after the collapse, the economy was struggling and people all of a sudden became poor, so poor that they couldn't imagine they could be so poor. And uh, at that point, they didn't care about democracy, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of, uh, I don't know, religion or assembly or whatever. They wanted to go back to their comfortable Soviet past. And now this 38 year old guy who comes up and says, you know what? 
I promise that I will uh, um, make your life better. We will create this uh, like stronger relations with Russia. So we will create this quasi state of uh, union state with Russia and our little own Soviet Union. So we will go back to our comfortable past where you were taken care of from the cradle to the grave by the government. And he managed to do it, as I showed, um, not necessarily thanks to his economic genius, but because he was just very fortunate with exogenous factors. And at that time, for those people, it was what they wanted. But within 26 years, a different generation grew up in Belarus. Uh, those younger people who have more opportunities in life, who can travel and go abroad, uh, who have the internet, uh, they're different and they don't want him anymore. And even those who are older, they still, they're so tired of him and of his populism and of what's going on in the country. You know, uh, promising people for 15 or 20 years that your average monthly salary is going to be $500, but it's average. It means that many people are not even making this much. Um, and uh, again, he came with the same uh, promise for the sixth time. So for how long can you continue with this? And the, the, the issue that he didn't, he's in complete denial about COVID-19. And this added a lot to people's discontent and, you know, their, 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 their rage because people do get sick and people die and the government uh, acts like nothing is happening and you're on your own. You don't want to send your kids to school, it's up to you, but there is no quarantine or nothing at all in place. So okay. I hope this the question. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it, all very interesting. So I see that Michael Goodman has no, but before I recognize him, which will probably be our, our last question, I want to take advantage of my role as moderator to ask you a question myself. And so, uh, it's right, so, so you titled your talk, The Fall of uh, Europe's Last Dictator, and yet uh, at the end you mentioned that Lukashenko himself says that uh, he will only leave office uh, in, a, in a coffin or something like that, right? So, so he's clearly expressed uh, an unwillingness to depart peacefully. So um, I'd like to ask you, you know, give us a scenario whereby actually you could have the removal or the actual fall of Lukashenko. Do you think that that's likely to happen? If so, how will it look? Um, if not, then what's really in store for Belarus in the coming years? Well, of course, Lukashenko said that you will first have to kill me. Uh, right. But um, I don't know if that's true, but there are some rumors already that his younger son, Nikolai, he's already in Russia going to school there, uh, as well as his um, uh, granddaughters, uh, the daughters of his older son, Victor. And if that's true, that's already a sign that Lukashenko is kind of um, considering this as a, as a possible scenario, that he mm -hmm. might not be in power um, much longer. Also, if you heard about his secret inauguration that took place yesterday, Again, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how true that is, but allegedly even the Central Election Committee, the, like two hours before the inauguration, they had no idea it was going to happen. It was so secret, even by law, it is required to be broadcast by the national uh, TV channel, it wasn't. There were about 200 people present, and I wouldn't be surprised if those people didn't even know why they were supposed to gather in the uh, Palace of the Republic. And uh, as some say that this might also be a sign that implicitly Lukashenko acknowledged acknowledge that he lost uh, his um, fight against uh, the people of Belarus. So the possible scenarios might be 
Um, first of all, Belarus is really in a huge predicament economically. We do need money. Uh, right now, only Russia agreed to give us some. So Putin uh, recently gave uh, Lukashenko $1.5 billion, but most of that money will be spent on paying back Russia's debt that we have already and an interest rate. Um, so when the economy will really deteriorate and there will be no help, perhaps Lukashenko will decide that for him it's better to really, you know, just get out of the country, maybe secretly, maybe not, um, because his, uh, what, what are the options? Uh, if he doesn't leave um, peacefully uh, and if the opposition gains some strength or if there is a division among the elites, if uh, law enforcement all of a sudden they start uh, mm. going to the side, you know, to the people's side and he loses their, their support, uh, then they might just arrest him and they might even kill him. Or in the best case, they will, they will send him to the Hague uh, so maybe if, if this becomes really something, something real for him, he might decide to, you know, escape and run. I don't know where he would run. Probably he, what does he have, like Russia and Venezuela, uh, maybe China? <laughs> oh, well, maybe he has Cuba. So, so very quickly then, because uh, we're one minute over our usual time already, but I see what uh, Michael Goodman's question was, is there a special relationship between the leaders of Belarus and Cuba? I don't know. I don't think so. At least it's not in the like, public discourse. So with, with China, yes. Uh, we know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've never heard that. Uh, well, uh, also about Venezuela, you know, when Hugo Chavez died, Lukashenko and his son, Kole, were there at the funeral. Uh, but as far as Cuba is concerned, um, I don't, I don't think so. Maybe there is something, but not something to the point that it's kind of news and then like public discourse and people are talking about it all the time. Okay. Well, uh, I think that, you know, as you can see, your, your presentation provoked a lot of questions and uh, thank That's you so good. much, uh, Yulia, for uh, informing us about the situation in uh, Belarus and for answering all of our questions. And thank you, to all the audience members for your attention and engagement. And uh, I hope to see everybody at future uh, virtual Krika lectures. Uh, meanwhile, everybody have a great weekend and um, best of luck. Stay safe and stay healthy.